Hi friends, I'm Michael Kingswood. It's story time. And we reached the end. This is the end. Last two chapters of the Patrick Cleese Conspiracy here this week. Um, been a long time getting here. <laughs> it took me a long time to write. It feels like it took me even longer to read all this stuff for you guys. Um, not really true on either respect, actually. We'll just get straight into it. I'll talk to you after the chapters. I hope you enjoy it. Chapter 62 Reunion My God, Grant breathed, his voice hushed. Odd. He was looking out the port side observation window on the bridge at the alien ship in formation with them, his mouth agape. And who could blame him? Not one, but two alien starships, or perhaps warships. Running in clear view in a tight formation with your own ship was not exactly an everyday sight. It was one thing to know intellectually that was coming, it was another thing entirely for it to actually happen, for you to definitively see that not only was there other intelligent life in the galaxy, but it was more advanced than man. Joe could relate. Even though it was not her first meeting with the creatures, she still felt a giddy excitement mixed with primal terror just looking at them. Of course, even had this been her thousandth time meeting them, she expected her reaction would be the same considering her mission this time. How do we play this? Malcolm asked. Joe looked over to where he hovered on the starboard side of the bridge, his arms crossed over his chest in an almost defensive manner, and his brow furrowed in thought, or worry. Again, who could blame him if it was the latter? Joe shrugged. Same way as on Pericles, I guess. We secure ring rotation, and the exterior illumination lights shine the mooring lights on the airlock we want them to come aboard through and wait. Unless you have a better idea? Malcolm remained silent for a short while, considering. Grant spoke up before Malcolm did. If it was me, I wouldn't just come over to an unknown vessel just because they shined a spotlight on their airlock. Why not? It worked before and, yeah, before they were stuck in the life pod after their ship blew up, right? Joe nodded. So they had no choice. These guys, Grant jerked a thumb at the ship to port, do. And they're probably wondering who or what we are and what we want. If we go making sudden moves like darkening ship, they might take that as showing hostile intent. Joe's blood went cold. That would be well past bad. It would not do at all for them to have gone to all the trouble of bringing the eggs back here just to be shot down by the people they meant to deliver the eggs to. She tried to think of a way around Grant's logic, but after a moment she realized he was right. How would she react if one of those alien ships just showed up in the Sol system and started acting strangely? How would the United Earth military react? Good point, Joe said. You have a suggestion? Grant nodded. They obviously received our signal. Why don't you play that message you supposedly have in that black flashlight thing for them over the radio? That ought to show them we're on the level. Then we can work out how to bring them aboard so we can give them their kids back. It boggles Joe's mind how she could have missed something so obvious. Shaking her head in chagrin, she said, I'll be right back, then headed below. The trip down the lift to Ring A seemed to take forever, though it was only a few minutes. From there, it was a quick jog to the cargo space where they had stowed the incubator and loader. The black rod the alien captain gave her on board Pericles was right where she left it before hitting the cryotank, safely enclosed in a small bin a few spots down from the incubator that was meant to hold delicate items that needed to be stored securely. Feeling an almost reverent rush, she lifted the rod out of the bin and stared at it for a moment. So many monumental things had happened because of the information in this thing and the precious cargo within the incubator. It seemed odd that such a small device could do so much. Malcolm's voice over the 1MC broke her reverie. Get up here, Joe. I think they're getting antsy. Crap. Joe hurried from the cargo space, sprinting toward the lift and the bridge. Joe gave Malcolm a hard look. 
We need to talk about your definition of antsy. Malcolm shrugged as if to say, hey, don't look at me, but did not reply. Rolling her eyes, Joe turned away from him, looked out at the alien ships. Two kilometers. They had maneuvered two kilometers closer and then stopped, holding position on both quarters, just as before. They were just drifting along in time with Agrippa, not doing anything, and he called that acting antsy. Easy for you to say now. And that was true. Had she been up on the bridge when they maneuvered, Joe may have had the same reaction Malcolm did. Maybe. But, and she often forgot this, he was an engineer, not a pilot. He had little to no experience in the way ships interact and how they maneuver, especially when in close proximity to each other. And it was not like they were dealing with humans here. He could be forgiven for being a little jumpy. For his part, Grant looked slightly amused, though there was a tightness about his eyes that belied his little grin. He was more tense than he put on. Hard to blame him for that, either. <laughs> Joe felt it, too. Okay, she said, and moved past the men toward the pallet station and the communications panel to its right. Let's see how this works. A few taps of the display called up the first contact protocol display again. She paused and glanced back at Malcolm. He shrugged and said, it's worth a shot. Joe activated the little microphone and looked down at the rod, at the three little buttons inlaid onto one side. The first called up the star map and the third to technical schematics, their payment. The second was for what she needed now, but for some reason she hesitated to play the message. It almost felt like a sacred act doing that. Like playing the message would consummate everything she had worked for these last weeks. These last decades. Better to not listen to that little voice, though. She shook her head at her silliness and tapped the transmit button. Then she pressed the second button on the rod. The image of the alien captain's face appeared in the air, a holographic projection, and began speaking in the alien's language of barks, growls, and hisses. The captain continued for some time, explaining, Joe hoped, what had happened to their ship and that they had entrusted their eggs to Joe and her crew. Of course, he could be saying something else entirely. He could be telling his brethren to kill them and use the star map to invade Earth, now that the humans have been foolish enough to reveal themselves. Joe forced such thoughts away. She would not give in to paranoia, and anyway, it was far too late to do anything to avert that invasion, if such really was the alien's intention. Which, it wasn't. Lord, let it be so. One airlock looks much the same as any other, but this one held particular importance to Joe. It was here, or at least the equivalent airlock on Pericles, and they were identical, where she greeted the alien captain and his crew as they stepped aboard her ship. And you almost got your throat ripped out. Joe ground her teeth and tried not to remember that part of the first meeting. She drew a deep breath and looked at Malcolm. He floated weightlessly at the airlock control panel at the ready. Just as Grant proposed, after playing the message over the radio circuits, he and Malcolm had moved the incubator into position at this airlock. Then Joe secured the ring rotation and all external illumination except for the running lights and anti-collision strobes, and turned the mooring spotlights onto the airlock outer door. Then she transferred ring rotation and external sensor control to the airlock workstation and hurried to join Malcolm and Grant here. The Iliads had been stoic in their response to the message. In fact, they had done nothing. At least nothing that Joe could see before she left the bridge. By the time she joined the men at the airlock, that nothing had changed to... Nothing. Joe was beginning to wonder whether they really had received her transmissions, either of them, when the workstation beeped an alert. She tapped the screen, and the display shifted to the aft upper camera, which was trained on the alien vessel to starboard. The display showed a small, round object drop from the ventral section of the alien ship, and proceed a few hundred meters down, then stop completely before advancing at a brisk pace toward Agrippa. Looks like they got the message, Grant said from beside her, a certain satisfaction in his tone. Joe nodded. They'll be here in a minute. 
Take station. And so they arrayed themselves, Joe in the center of the room next to the incubator, Malcolm at the airlock controls, and Grant over to the right. Despite his satisfaction that his suggestion had paid off, Grant looked nervous and downright uncomfortable. He probably feels naked without a gun. Joe smirked inwardly. Well, maybe not entirely inwardly. Grant had pressed hard to have at least one of them armed, preferably himself for this meeting. It makes sense, he said. I have the most training. If we need to defend ourselves, Joe had cut him off with a shake of her head and a raised hand. If we need to defend ourselves, we're dead anyway. Even if we fight the ones in the shuttle off, the ship will just open fire. I'm not going to risk this meeting going wrong, not this time. Grant hated it, but he was forced to concede her logic and acquiesced. Now, looking at him, so obviously ill at ease, Joe knew she was right not to let him grab a gun. He just might shoot before thinking. Not he had ever come close to doing that before, but that was just another added risk onto a mission that was risky enough already. Everyone ready? Joe asked, trying to keep her voice calm and in command. She was actually surprised at how well she accomplished that. Nods all around. Joe turned her attention to the workstation display. Malcolm had called up the airlock's external camera, and it revealed the alien shuttle on approach. It was remarkably similar to the life pod Joe remembered from the first ship, with a number of circular protuberances on various locations and strange hieroglyphs that Joe presumed were the aliens' language. The biggest difference she saw was while the life pod had been roughly spherical, the shuttle was flat on one side. Joe surmised that side housed landing gear of some sort. Maybe it was capable of atmospheric re-entry? A gripper's shuttle could not do that. No need. Or at least that's what the designers said. But Joe could see all sorts of useful reasons for that capability. The shuttle stopped even with the airlock, then rotated until the flat side faced the ring's outer edge. A moment later, one of the protuberances bulged slightly, then parted, allowing a circular tunnel to cross the intervening distance between the shuttle and the airlock outer door. Just before it reached the airlock, the end of the tunnel warped and convulsed, then settled into a shape that Joe knew exactly matched the airlock's seating surface. A soft thunk penetrated the hull as the tunnel made contact, followed by a very soft sucking sound that lasted for less than a heartbeat. The airlock control panel beeped, and a light flashed green. Malcolm read the display and turned back to Joe, nodding. Soft seal. Farewell, restore ring rotation. Aye. Malcolm tapped the control on the workstation, and a moment later the faintest hint of a rushing noise reached Joe's ears. Thrusters firing, Malcolm reported, referring to sets of thrusters mounted tangential to the rings that were used to get the rings started initially. Slowly, ever so slowly, the bulkheads at Joe's left began moving toward her. It always took a few moments to overcome inertia before, turning motor engaged, Malcolm said. The wall began to speed up, and a moment later Joe found herself pressed up against it. She slid down to the deck and stepped away from the bulkhead, moving slowly to avoid bouncing off the deck in the extremely low, but slowly building, simulated G-forces. The men were moving similarly. In another circumstance, it would almost be comic. On the camera display, the alien's tunnel flexed and shifted slightly, but the airlock seal held, and soon enough the shuttle was revolving in time with the ring as it slowly built up to its earth-normal turning rate. Malcolm did not wait for an order. He tapped the airlock controls, and a red light over the inner door began flashing as the outer door slid open. Nothing happened for several minutes. Then, just as on Pericles, a doorway opened at the far end of the tunnel. For a second or two, the only thing visible from within the shuttle was a soft, white-orange light but then a pair of figures eclipsed the light and walked out into the tunnel, the doorway shut behind them. The aliens were just as Joe recalled, short, stooped, wearing gray jumpsuits and breathing masks over their elongated snouts. Their yellow-green, scaly skin seemed to glisten in the tunnel's lighting as they approached, and as before, they were armed. 
or at least Joe assumed the staff-like handles that stuck up over their shoulders were the grips to weapons of some sort. She shifted on her feet uncomfortably, recalling the feel of the alien captain's powerful fingers clenching her throat and how those wicked-looking claws had extended from the fingertips of the captain's free hand. They hardly needed any weapons at all if the aliens meant to do them harm. Malcolm shifted the display to the airlock's inner security camera as the aliens stepped over the threshold. Their movements became slightly awkward as they crossed from their tunnel into the airlock. Joe recalled that happening on Pericles as well, probably a result of them leaving their artificial gravity field and entering Agrippa's. They recovered quickly, though, and shortly reached the inner airlock door. There they waited for a moment. Then the one on Joe's right, it was slightly larger than its fellow, and Joe presumed it was the leader, pulled the staff-looking thing out of its shoulder harness and wrapped the end of it against the airlock inner door. Knock-knock, Grant quipped. Malcolm snorted out a little laugh, then tapped a command into the airlock control panel. A moment later, a soft hissing sound announced the equalization of air pressure within the airlock in the tunnel. He took a moment to read the display, then looked back at Joe and nodded. Equalized. Atmosphere's nominal. Very well. Joe got back into position and smoothed out her clothes. Not that coveralls really need smoothing, but it just seemed the thing to do. Then she looked her little crew over. They had done well. Damn well. Now came the payoff. She nodded at Malcolm. Well, she said, here we go. Malcolm tapped the control panel, and the inner door slid open. Chapter 63 From Out of the Blue Elena Dmitrikov yawned and leaned back in her chair, rubbing at her eyes to ward off sleep. It had been a long shift, and there were still four hours left to go. Her brain felt fuzzy, and it was all she could do to keep her eyes open. It was her own damn fault, of course. She knew better than to stay out late the evening before she had the duty. But it was Jasmine's last day aboard the station, and Elena would never have forgiven herself if she missed the going-away party. And the after-party. Another yawn burst forth, and she kicked her chair back from her station. She needed to stand up, to move around, get the blood flowing. Her back, stiff from sitting for so long, protested as she straightened. Grimacing, she raised her arms up over her head, the loose white fabric of her uniform blouse falling down around her shoulder as she did so, and stretched the way her yoga instructors always taught her. She went all the way up onto her tiptoes, her soft pseudo-leather shoes flexing easily as though part of her skin, and she felt a slight pop from somewhere in the middle of her back. All at once, the discomfort went away and she was left with only a blissful feeling of relaxation. Exhaling slowly, she lowered her arms and sank back down onto the flats of her feet. Much better. A sudden sensation, very like someone poking at her with a blunt piece of soft plastic, brought her attention back to her station. Unless one was logged in, the station did not look like much, just an empty space at the end of a small, oblong room with gray-blue walls and a faux wood paneled floor and ceiling. But to her eyes, the space was alive with data. The readouts from every craft in this sector of the solar system, the status of every communications relay, every outpost were instantly available to her, if she but reached out for them. She sat back down and slid forward, and found herself surrounded by space in all its immensity. Even just her little proportion was awe-inspiring. As always, it took a moment to reacclimate, to force down the mixture of vertigo and exhilarated joy she felt as she floated in the void, observing all that occurred. Of course, it was just a simulation, but what did it matter? It was still enough to take one's breath away. The moment passed as it always did, and the tugging at her consciousness drew her attention to the far edge of her assigned sector, on the southeast by east edge of the Oort Cloud. Two objects that were not present before she went through her wake-up routine caught her eye immediately, as much because they were outlined in gleaming silver, a construct of the sim that was designed to draw attention to new contacts, 
as because they were so much different from anything else that was flying. The first was a long, cylinder-shaped craft with several great spheres surrounding its after haft and what looked like two rings, rings, about a third of the way from its bow. The second was larger, off-white, and crescent-shaped. Elena frowned. Where had they come from? A thought reversed the sim of the two vessels. They could only be vessels, until they suddenly vanished. She blinked and the sim began playing forward again. There was a momentary flash of light, and then something happened. It was like space itself bent and twisted. Elena would not have noticed, except the star opposite the area where it occurred suddenly became distorted and then vanished, and its place was only a reddish-yellow circle that hung there for a second or two, doing nothing. Then, the cylinder ship shot out of the circle, followed by the crescent a few seconds later. The strange circle, or hole, or whatever it was, closed abruptly behind them, and space returned to normal. The sim froze as Elena realized what she had just seen. A wormhole, a hyperspace portal, whatever the different theorists call it, it was supposed to be nigh on impossible to create, and yet what else could it have been? Her earlier fatigue long since forgotten, Elena gave quick thought to a report for headquarters in Geneva and reset the sim to current time. The two objects drifted together, the crescent having taken station off the cylinder's port side. The orbital computations took less time than it took to query for them. They were on an intercept heading for Earth. The message popped into Elena's vision, and she checked it over quickly, then with a thought set it flying. They were several light hours away. Conceivably, there would be plenty of time for a follow-up before the two craft could pose a serious threat, but given what she had just seen, there was nothing to be gained from delaying her report for further analysis, which did not mean she was not going to investigate further. The sim zoomed in on the pair of ships, and Elena's breath caught in her throat. At the higher magnification, she recognized both instantly, the cylinder ship was an old Achilles-class starliner. What the hell was one of those doing flying around? The last of them were decommissioned over 200 years ago, when the Higgs Carpenter Drive rendered their plasma impulse engines and centripetal rings obsolete. But the other... For her entire NSA career, Elena had seen images of that other ship. Grainy images, by modern standards, shot through old-style telescopic cameras centuries ago. Images of an alien craft that housed beings with the ability to invade a person's mind, to turn otherwise good and loyal men and women against their own race. A craft that she and her comrades must constantly guard against. A craft that now appeared in her sim display. Elena swallowed hard against the surge of fear that swept over her. She had to stay under control, record as much as possible. Any piece of data, no matter how seemingly insignificant, could make the difference between survival and destruction at these beings' hands. But she had never thought to really see such a craft. For a full minute, she just watched the two craft drift in formation, every second bringing them closer to Earth. She could not think of what to do. The boogeyman from her earliest training was here, and she didn't know what to do. Finally, she pulled her attention back and looked to the nearest defense outpost, the Charon battery. The two craft were almost within range. Maybe the battery could intervene. That small action got the rest of her mental gears turning. She thought out a follow-up message for Earth, including her intentions to intercept with Charon and send it, chopping Charon in the transmission. Then she settled back to wait for a response. Local time appeared over the two craft and the battery on Charon when she thought of it, along with the craft's time to their closest point of approach at Charon. Elena frowned. They would reach CPA in about three hours. There was no way she would receive a reply from Earth in that time, so it was up to her. Elena reached out with her thoughts toward the Charon battery, and a heartbeat later she was part of the systems on the icy moon. The systems came online and her mind's touch. The weapons began powering up from the long slumber. 
death incarnated into plasma, fusion pulse torpedoes, and less exotic missiles and mass cannons came to train on the patch of space where the approaching craft would soon pass. And then she waited. Gradually, imperceptibly except for her simon-heighted awareness, the craft drew closer. She brought up the countdown timer. CPA in one hour. Elena licked her lips in anticipation. Then something else tugged on her consciousness, something new and unexpected. Unexpected because she had not sensed this particular tug in years since her training back on Titan. She frowned and cast a thought toward the new stimulus. The communications window flashed open, familiar and set up just as it always was. Her frown deepened. What was it? And then she saw it. At the bottom of the display, an old group of frequencies and modulation patterns that went out of use more than a century ago. She had always wondered why the NSA bothered to include them in its monitoring algorithms anymore, and why she had trained for them. Looking at the ancient Starliner apparently back from the scrapyard, she suddenly realized exactly why. The people in charge were expecting an encounter like this. That spike of fear flooded through her again. Elena tried to push it away to no avail. She pulled away from Charon. It was set to go and would take care of itself, only needing her input for the final engagement sequence, and shot through the void toward the pair of ships. This time she zoomed in as far as she could until the Starliner appeared nearly life-size in front of her. There, on the port bow, markings, hard to read in the dim light of the distant sun, despite the ship's whole illumination lights, but she managed to see the vessel's name, Agrippa. Elena recoiled, physically and mentally, and almost pushed herself out of the interface station again. Agrippa. It could not be. But then the other vessel from her training was there, large as life. Why not the traitorous Agrippa as well? What else were you expecting? What else could you expect? The thoughts were true, but knowing what the ship was, and seeing it for true, were two different things. If this was Agrippa, was it possible her captain drove her still like some ghost ship out of ancient legend? It was nonsense, of course. Ghosts did not exist, and people did not live nearly long enough for her captain to still be aboard. But if not, who was flying the famous cursed ship? Without realizing what she was doing, Elena returned to the communications control and keyed the old channels to life. The sim in front of her flickered, then coalesced into a quadrilateral of static for a brief half-second, before resolving into the image of a more-than-handsome woman of East Asian descent. Her hair was long, black but heavily streaked with silver, and pulled back from her face in a ponytail. She wore black fatigues of some kind and sat in a chair facing her transmission station, no doubt. Flanking her were two men, one tall and slender African, with even more gray than she had, the other short and more stocky of Central European descent from his looks, and only a bit of gray on his temples. Elena's heart skipped a beat. She knew those faces, the traitors. On instinct, she moved her thoughts to the chair on battery, but the craft were too far out of range to do any good. The Asian woman smiled ever so slightly before speaking. Earth Control, this is Josephine Ishikawa aboard Starliner Agrippa, over. Or at least that's what Elena thought she said. Some of Ishikawa's words were indecipherable, a dialect that Elena had never heard before. The sim did its best to fill in the gaps, but it was still difficult to be certain she had heard correctly. Elena licked her lips, trying to restore some moisture to her mouth. What to do? Before she realized what she was doing, she heard herself say, This is Saul Approach, Haley Sector. Ishikawa's eyebrow quirked upward at the identifier that had to be, for her, unfamiliar. Haley Sector, this is Ishikawa aboard Agrippa. Malcolm Ngubwe is here with me, the tall African nodded gravely, as well as Grant Guilford. The European flashed a quick smile that almost looked forced. We've come home and we've brought some new friends with us. Request safe passage through the solar system and permission to approach and dock at Earth. 
We have a lot to discuss and our friends are eager to meet with Earth's leadership. They pledge non-aggression for the duration of our stay. Elena found herself unable to put a coherent thought together for some time, let alone respond. They were really here, the demons and traitors everyone had warned about. She should just blast them out of the sky. Her superiors would advise her to do just that. And yet, looking at the Ishikawa woman's eyes, serious but unguarded, and those of her companions, Elena suddenly found it hard to assign the raving lunatic label to them, even though it had been passed down to her for so many years. Why not? She did not know how to answer her own thoughts, but something told her that this woman and her crew was not an immediate threat. And besides, there were many more batteries ready and able to unleash death in all its forms the closer to the inner solar systems they approached, and they were only two ships. If they were indeed a threat, it would become plain soon enough, and the batteries and ready warships could take care of it. Elena made her decision. With a thought, she secured the battery at Charon, putting it back into sleep mode. Then she replied, Permission granted to transit, Agrippa. For docking, contact orbital approach control on 327.483, modulation alpha 62. Ishikawa's eyebrows raised, and she mouthed the channel identifiers to herself, then glanced at Ngubwe. He frowned, but after a moment, nodded. Apparently, the ship's communication array could handle that channel. Ishikawa returned the nod, then faced forward. Roger, Haley Sector. Thank you. Agrippa, out. The transmission winked out. Lena brought up an update to the headquarters and sent it. Somewhere in the back of her mind, she knew her lack of action here might incur the wrath of her superiors. But somehow, that seemed all right. She stared for a long time at the old Starliner, drifting with its unknowable companion, and some of that fear she had felt before receded replaced once more by exhilaration. Welcome home, she said to no one. And to everyone. Okay, that's it. That's the book. Some people have written me over the last couple of years since I wrote the book, read it, and liked it. They're like, hey man, you gonna follow up on that? And some not that's not been done yet. And uh, they're right, there is. Um, but I would, you know, going forward from here, I envision diplomatic talks with the, the aliens um, who clearly are not there to in, invade, right? If they were, probably would have just done it. Um, and my vision is that uh, Joe and Malcolm and Grant managed to you know, communicate what was going on and the overall good intentions and figure out some way to, you know, at least approximate understanding of the alien tongue so they could talk a little more too. And that they all decided to come together to try to establish relations, right? The, as going forward from here, I envisioned a whole bunch of diplomatic talks, a whole bunch of legal wrangling, maybe a little bit of reparations for the harm that was done to some of the eggs. Maybe not. Maybe the aliens are just considered a wash. Um, I haven't decided on that. But yeah, eventually, good relations moving forward, and yay, rah, rah, and, and Grant and Malcolm and, and Joe, maybe not being lauded as heroes or anything, but certainly not being locked up. More like, okay, uh, you're maybe not the monsters we thought you were, and you know, more or less, you know, back to life and business as usual, except that, you know, now there's aliens. Um, that's sort of the vision I have of it, but I'm really not interested in writing that. Um, I was interested in telling this story about 
this captain get put in this situation. You meet these aliens, they give you their babies uh, to take care of and get home. And you think the people that you think are going to take care of it, the elected powers that be, the, the, the set up, uh, renege on it, then what do you do to right the wrong that you know is going on and nobody else does? Right, so that's the story I set out to show, to write. That's what I was interested in, and that's what I did. Uh, that final chapter I wanted to I wrote in such a way as to show that yes, she was successful, and looks like everything was gonna you know go at least in a better right direction now. But as like I said, I didn't want to get into legal wrangling, wrangling and diplomatic wrangling because I'm just not interested in that. So, um, as far as I'm concerned, it's uh, a Good happy ending, and hoo yeah. Uh, and there have been a couple of people who didn't like that I didn't go into all that stuff, but hmm, sorry. Someday down the road, maybe I'll touch on them again, and you'll see something more from Joe and Grant and Malcolm, but probably not. Uh, like I said, I'm just not interested in the kind of diplomatic wrangling that is going to go on, and yeah, just moving on to other things. So. Hopefully you liked the ending. If you didn't, uh, and you wanted more, uh, sorry, that's all I had for this particular story. And uh, it is what it is. So, uh, yeah, like I said, that's the book. Hopefully you dug it. If you did, tell all your buddies about it. This podcast, and I'm be taking these podcast episodes since I've been uh, taking a long time with all of them, specifically so I could get the uh, audio quality up as best as I could uh, and, and I intend to compile all these in an author narration edition audiobook and put it up everywhere because why not right I've done that with shorter stories and it makes sense to do it with this some point down the road I may have a real voice actor <laughs> read and act it out too but that's more costly as we've talked about before so you can tell everybody about the podcast tell them about the audiobook and come by my site. And if you still haven't, still haven't bought the book but always wanted to, now's the time. If you just want to give a donation, you can at the site. Uh, if you want to become a member of the site of my newsletter, either to get emails about new releases and deals, or become a supporting member on the site, you can do that too. It's all at michaelkingswood.com. And you can get the book directly from me at ssnstorytelling.com, as well as every other book and shorter story I've written, you can get there too. Or you can go to all the usual Amazon audio, audio, uh, I'm sorry, Audible, iBooks, Barnes and Noble, all those places have all my stuff. Uh, so you can get there if you prefer. Uh, I will be back next week and we'll start back into some short stories again. Just going to do several weeks here of just, you know, a story a week, make it easy get back into the mood for that again and then you know a little ways down the road we'll get into probably do the um audiobook of outdweller the second grill and reveal book because i've got it <laughs> might as well do it make the podcast easy for a few months uh but i think for the next few weeks at least i'm gonna do through you know at least probably a month or two of short story weeks keep the fun that way yeah that's all i got hopefully you guys enjoyed it if you did please let me know drop me a line you can meet me at the website or comments on the podcast or the video, wherever you found it. That's it. Until next week, don't do anything I wouldn't do. <laughs>